Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, welcome, and thank you very much for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. Very happy to welcome back Tim Cockerell today. Tim recently led our congregation through a study of Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 through 13. So Tim, thanks for jumping back into the hot seat. Absolutely, looking forward to it. Well, you, uh, before we went on the line here, you prayed, and you prayed about a powerful book. And it is a powerful book, uh, relatively small, uh, 14 chapters, but uh, really already turning heads in our congregation, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, well, it just has such a drama that unfolds in Hosea's life that points us to what God has done for us. And even as I was preparing for this next week's message, I was reminded of the way that Nathan used a word picture with David, if you remember that, um, and convicting him about his adultery with Bathsheba. And he tells this story that just engages the emotions and evokes this you know, angry response in David. And then Nathan just turns and says, you're the man. And, and I feel like that's what God's doing in my life and then hopefully in our life as a church as we are just gripped by the drama that unfolds here. Well, drama, and we talked last week about this being a, a little sticky subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, had, I even had one of, uh, from our uh, ABF, who Adult Bible Fellowship, who said, well, how does Tim decide on how has he deciding how to, even to do this in the first mm-hmm. place, to preach this book, but how is he deciding how to, how to present it? It's very uh, sticky, very unique subject material. And so I, to those people who are asking that this week, I say, go back to last week. We did discuss that. Tim uh, shared how uh, kind of some of the rubric that he uses mm-hmm. to, that you use to uh, go through and develop your preaching schedules. So uh, before we begin here and getting into our discussion, just a quick disclaimer that some of what we discuss in this episode and probably in following episodes as well may be unsuitable for the younger ears in your vicinity. So do feel free to hit the pause button. Come back to us, though, when you're able to do so. And I also want to give a shout out to our ambassadors, Adult Bible Fellowship, our ABF, that Sandy and I lead. We had an abbreviated teaching time here this past Sunday. So I used that time to challenge them to hit me some questions they have about the first two chapters of Hosea. So uh, yay, ambassadors, had mm-hmm. a good job and uh, appreciate your input into this week, especially. So Tim, let, let's start with a question that's probably good to touch on with an audience of ones who have you know been studying the Bible perhaps for as much as six or seven decades in a couple cases or more, and and obviously ones who perhaps started just last year, maybe even just last week. Tim, we, we started our study this week in verse 2 of Hosea, mm-hmm. chapter 2, and not verse 1. Now, a question might be from somebody, if verse 1 really belongs with chapter 1, like most of our Bibles would indicate the way mm-hmm. they've divided it. Why didn't God put it there in the first place? That seems like a good question. Well, of course, you know, when these letters or prophecies or narratives were written, they didn't come with chapter and verse divisions. It was only much, much later that in order to try to identify specific phrases or sentences, that the Bible was divided up into chapters and verses within the books that were already widely established. And so they did their best to identify the the frames of thought, the paragraphs that kind of uh, had a, a framework there. But there were times where a, a verse division or a chapter division 
fell in an unfortunate place. Maybe sometimes that was because they didn't have as clear an understanding of the original languages, or maybe they had a particular understanding of how that went together with what came before or didn't go together with what came after. And so and this is one of those situations where the, the chapter division falls probably in a slightly different place where most exegetes would say it fits best. Yeah, and that brings up another point. Uh, somebody who is young in the faith, somebody who's just starting to read the Bible, or maybe they've been reading for a decade, but just wants some some guidance. What would you suggest? I mean, there there's a Bible out there for everybody, and every you know, it seems like every uh, preacher on the radio has uh, something that they've they're promoting uh, mm-hmm. their own text uh, or, or uh, notes in, a, in the Bible or uh, a study Bible. Do you have a suggestion to somebody who says, hey, I'm looking for something that would be good to read and something that would help me in my study. Are you talking about a specific version or a specific type of study uh, Bible? Let's, let's go with specific specific type of study Bible, but if you have a specific version that you cotton to, that's fine too. Not necessarily. So I've used NIV, I've used ESV, I've used NAS, uh, kind of equal parts at various points in my life, and I can appreciate different things about each one of those translations. I would say go with a trusted publisher editor that's going to have study notes that are are going to reflect a good theology there's uh, any number of different study bibles that you can get that take a different angle you know you can take get the the patriot study bible and and it's not <laughs> there's anything wrong with uh, patriotism or those types of things but just know that then the study notes are going to have that kind of frame in terms of how they're analyzing it and so it really depends on on the individual and their preference but i would say Use that as a tool, but don't use it in a way that bypasses your own personal study. So look at the verses, look at the text, ask the questions, and then use those study notes as a bit of a commentary that might explain certain things that aren't readily available or or easily understood. I might add, if you have a, if you're listening, you have a somebody whom you respect and maybe knows you pretty well, might be able to suggest one that would be good for you specifically. Absolutely, good. Tim, uh, getting here specifically to Hosea, you've mentioned that Baal worship often was sexual in nature. There was a, certainly a sexual component in a lot of it. Some have suggested that Gomer was or might have been a temple prostitute. You, you haven't gotten real deep into that. It is supposition. But what are your thoughts on that idea, and what effect might that have on how we understand what God's doing here? Right. It certainly is a possibility. We're going to see when we get to Hosea chapter 4 that the religious leaders, you know, the, the priests and whatnot, were actually engaging with the temple prostitutes of Baal. And so we know that this was the type of practice that was widespread. These are not the Baal priests you're talking about. Correct. We're talking about the priests who were supposed to be representing God, who were embroiled in sexual scandals, which we'll see has some interesting parallels even to today. And so it's possible. There have been an, actually a number of commentators that have suggested either before Gomer ever married Hosea or after the fact that she had gotten into this lifestyle of of temple or cultic prostitution. That's possible. We don't have any indication from the text that that was the case, but it would be consistent with that lifestyle. What we're going to see in next week's message is by the time Hosea goes to redeem her, she's actually owned by one individual. Uh, likely in some form of slavery. So by that point, it's unlikely that she is merely engaging in cultic prostitution, but that that she is owned by an individual and perhaps even being prostituted 
by this individual um, in other relationships. So we don't know for certain, and it, it is certainly possible. Very good. I'm interested to, uh, and somebody asked uh, in our ABF, uh, how might a prophet like Hosea, now they, you know, we have 14 minor prophets, mm-hmm. we have four what we call major prophets, and those, again, as we've said before, are uh, dictated by just the size of their books, really, mm-hmm. and, but uh, or, uh, primarily. But how, how might a prophet like Hosea have been identified within the Jewish community of his time? Uh, is this something where the people identified him and said, hey, you know, he's going to be a prophet. He's really, you know, he's a godly man and this and that. Or is this somebody that God identified and gave to the people? How did that happen? Right. In most of the cases, we see that God has identified and commissioned. We see some very explicit examples of that in, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, things like that. But any prophet in society would have been known primarily because they claimed to speak for God. Um, So they were, in some ways, the preachers of their day. They were taking what was known about God and giving pastoral or prophetic application to the nation. And and so what's interesting is that there were many, what we would call false prophets, who were claiming to speak for God, but who were actually diverting the people. They were saying, oh, God's not going to punish you. They're, They're saying, peace, peace, when in reality, there's no peace. And so the reason why Hosea, as well as other prophets, their words have been preserved is because they were divinely commissioned. The things that they said were going to happen did come true, which were a part of the mosaic stipulations for how to identify a true prophet. And so Hosea wouldn't have been the only one. He actually ministered during the time of Joel and Jonah and Amos. Um, But the fact that his words had the authenticity of truth differentiated him from some of the the false prophets of the day. And would these have been uh, uh, just localized individuals or these been recognized throughout the nation? That's hard to say. Uh, Certainly some of them that we can see had audience with Kings uh, would have been more readily known. uh, But also Israel wasn't that developed of a nation. And so it's a little bit like living in Cedarville, Ohio, where everybody kind of knows what's going on because of the relational connections that were there. In the same way, if you lived in the north of Israel, someone who had some amount of prominence or influence would have been known throughout that entire region. By the way, I want to talk to you about something I saw you doing the other day. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. Okay. So we we talk about the idea of prophecy. Okay. And then... uh, my mind goes to a New Testament passage. I pulled it up here in Ephesians chapter four, uh, is talking about the church and the gifting of people in the church. And it says, and, and he himself, that is Jesus, gave, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, talking about the New Testament church. Mm-hmm. So speak to somebody who says, okay, well, I see here that prophets are among uh, are in the church. What is the gift of prophecy in the New Testament times? Oh, man, that's a whole can of worms, isn't it? <laughs> so I'll give you just kind of my, my quick off-the-top-of-my-head answer, and certainly it would, would merit further discussion as well as further study. There is an ongoing discussion, um, even debate, I would say, as to whether all of the spiritual gifts are continuing to operate within the church today uh, in the same way that they were operating back then. And so what I would say is that in the early church, the gift of apostle as well as the gift of prophecy were distinct 
to the early church. So just like we don't have modern day apostles, the apostles were those who saw the risen Christ and were commissioned by him. In the same way, when we had the early church getting established, the prophets were the ones who were speaking the very words of God. And many times when we think about prophecy, we think about foretelling. That is, that they're looking to the future and saying, here's what's going to happen. And we see examples of that even in the book of Hosea. But most of the time, the, the role of the prophet was forth-telling. That is, thus says the Lord, here's what who he is, here's who you are, and here's how you ought to respond as a result. And so many of the New Testament books that we have are the recording of these prophetic words that God gave to certain individuals. But that once then the New Testament was completed, the canon, if you will, if you want to use a theological term, was complete, we no longer had need for new revelation or ongoing prophecy because we had what was sufficient and necessary for um, for Christian life and godliness. And so my perspective would be every Sunday we continue to declare, hold forth the word of God, but not in the sense of giving new revelation, but rather uh, declaring or interpreting what God has already revealed to us. And then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there are, there's a camp in this discussion mm-hmm. uh, that would say the prophets are analogous to our preachers of today. Is that a true statement? Yep. You know, that they are, are declaring and interpreting the words of God for our individual context and, and challenges. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Ongoing discussion. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime later. Sounds good. Okay. We looked last week, Tim, at, at the larger narrative regarding the historical context of what was going on mm-hmm. in the area This you know, we're talking here uh, about the northern kingdom and whereas last uh, our study in Habakkuk was more about Babylon coming down and taking the southern kingdom so you also provided some thoughts as to Hosea's age mm-hmm. uh, in last week's discussion but can, can you provide any additional thoughts on how long Hosea might have prophesied what exactly was going on even in the second, I believe it was Second Kings mm-hmm. at that time, uh, the Second Kings narratives of uh, what was going on, especially in the the royal house anyway, and throughout right. the nation, that coincide with this prophecy. Absolutely. So we get a glimpse of this in Hosea one one, where it describes the names. Of, I think I believe it's four Judean kings and just one Israelite king. That would be Jeroboam the second. So that places the timeline roughly around seven fifty two B.C. when Jeroboam concluded his reign. And Jeroboam was a long-reigning king. There was peace and prosperity relatively uh, under his reign. And so as Hosea rises to his role as a prophet, Israel was feeling pretty complacent. They were feeling pretty secure in who they were and, and what they were doing. And so as a result, their hearts had become kind of self-sufficient and self-indulgent as they looked to Baal and these other religions. And Jeroboam's example actually facilitated and encouraged that. After Jeroboam's death, then we see a a kind of a revolving door of kings. I believe it's six different kings over a period of 30 years, four of whom were assassinated because there was just such tumultuous chaos and and overthrowing and, and coups and things like that. 
And then we actually see Assyria come into the region around 733. So we begin to see the enactment of what God has declared that you're going to be cut off in Jezreel, for instance, in Hosea chapter 1. You're going to be taken into exile, which ultimately then happened in 722 BC. So we know that Hosea ministered at least that long and likely even further because I believe it's in Hosea 1.1. It talks about him him reigning well into the, the him ministering well into the reign of, I believe it's Hezekiah um, in the south. And so that takes us all the way to like 715 BC. So we're talking about a, a ministry of at least 40 years. But Hosea had the opportunity to say, you need to repent, you need to return. God's going to bring judgment, but he's also eventually going to bring restoration. And he sees those things play out in, in a heartbreaking reality as he sees people killed and, and taken into exile during that period. And to round out what you're saying, hearkening uh, back, I believe we talked about this last week, and that is uh, Hosea's age. You suggest mm-hmm. that he may have been as young as 18 to 20 when this started. Correct. And that was often when someone would get married in that society. And so the fact that he wasn't married yet would suggest he was a relatively young man and that God had a very unusual choice of a bride for him. Wow. Yes, he did. And Tim, God, God calls us to, to utilize the resources he gives us, you know, certainly spiritually, but mm-hmm. also financially, talent-wise. The list goes on. We can include political uh, resources we have and whatever it might be. You talked about this a little in your sermon, but uh, as we were talking just briefly in our in our ABF, uh, the the question came up uh, from a couple of people. We often talk about healthy tensions, mm-hmm. and this is one of those. I'm pretty sure that's where you're probably going to go with this. I'm guessing, but if we really understand who God is, and we understand we have a, an awe of God, a proper fear of God, we use that term often. Uh, there can be that fear that will cross the line of propriety in, in the use of any of these resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about Christian nationalism is, is something that's mm-hmm. very prominent today. Um, theonomy, mm-hmm. uh, the whole idea of theonomy, we, I'll let you define what that is. <laughs> but, uh, and we can inappropriately re- rely on what I'm calling resources and not God. So can we talk about some ways to let that tension work for us instead of against us? Sure. No, it's, it's a great point because... Every one of our strengths have the potential to be a weakness. So if God gifts someone intellectually or academically, they can begin to think, I'm really something. I know a lot. Or if he gifts them athletically, they can begin to say, man, these accomplishments on the field or on the court really make me a cut above the rest. And so I think my answer to this is not going to be novel, but I think it certainly is practical as we try to put it into practice. And that is, it begins with a sense of humble gratitude. You know, that uh, you think about what Paul says, what gift do you have that you weren't given? And if you were given it, why do you boast as if it were your own accomplishment? Man, that just hits me square between the eyes. I don't know about you, but we all have this tendency to begin to start to think, well, it's really about me. It's about my energy or effort or initiative But ultimately, it's about God. And and so cultivating a heart of gratitude that says, God, what you have given to me has been entrusted to me as a stewardship. And ultimately, someday I will be accountable for how I have stewarded those things. And so I know that whatever I have is temporary. Athletic ability is temporary. Intellectual ability is temporary. There's some day that's going to come where I'm not going to be the smartest person in the room. 
that day for me is today. But for, others, <laughs> for other people, it's, it's going to be uh, further down the line. But as soon as we begin to trust in those things, we've already set ourselves up for failure. I think the other thing that I would say that, again, is not new or novel, but we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We, we never move beyond our need for God's redeeming grace to forgive us, but also his rescuing grace to transform us. And so many times as we begin to feel complacent, we begin to feel kind of self-satisfied and self-sufficient, we've lost our grip on the gospel and begun to believe a narrative about ourselves that really is more rooted in the world's thinking than in God's. And so I think that ends up being the key, that when we experience prosperity and blessing, we need to be on our guard that we don't begin to prioritize the blessings as the source of satisfaction, but that we continue to be satisfied in God, which is far easier said than done. Absolutely is. Yeah, we were, Sandy and I are uh, working through a premarital counseling process with a mm-hmm. young couple who's going to be married here soon. And uh, we were talking about the the one of the purposes of marriage uh, that God uses marriage in is, and we, you and I have talked about this uh, on the microphone and off, mm-hmm. uh, marriage can be very sanctifying because mm-hmm. it reminds us of how selfish we are. But other relationships, uh, people who have the permission and inviting people to speak into our lives, whether we want to hear it or not, is so important to have. It is because they see our blind spots in a way that we can't. And we need their perspective. We need, God uses them as a part of his rescuing grace. Yeah. I mean, how many times have, have we gone to make a decision or been pursuing a pattern that seems to make sense to us or seems good to us? And someone comes alongside who loves us enough to say, have you considered this? Or what does that suggest about your priorities? It, it opens our eyes to what we maybe were blind to before. And key to that is giving permission actually requesting it and and we've talked about this even in our elder council we mm-hmm. uh, going through a book by uh, Paul David Tripp mm-hmm. and speaking specifically about a leadership culture that invites input yes. into our own lives personally and and group wise mm-hmm. so great stuff Okay, so let's end on this. this uh, we're going to go get the shovel out and dig some dirt that we we dug a little bit last week. We we had a had a question from a very astute individual, um, maybe a little bit more theologically nuanced uh, question than than what we often deal with here on the podcast. But it follows up that discussion last week of two different types of prophecy. Mm-hmm. So if you're wondering what that discussion was last week, go back to last week and <laughs> uh, and you can listen. But it's specifically related to Romans chapter nine verses twenty around 23, 24, 25, referencing Hosea. And uh, you talked about two different types of prophecy. Uh, but this this listener's question is related specifically to prophecies that people that day were hearing about the coming Messiah. There was a mm-hmm. Messiah prophesied as early as Genesis chapter 3, 15, mm-hmm. we know, and so on through the scripture. And so you, you referenced clear, fulfilled prophecies, and then also what you suggested here from Romans chapter nine uh, is a thematic parallel that Paul is bringing up. So what defines a prophecy that Jesus must fulfill as a savior? And that would be opposed to prophecies or references that are applied to Jesus post facto. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure if I would have a paradigm that I could say, this is how you identify the ones in which he must fulfill it. Because many times in the old Testament, the we'll call the messianic prophecies 
are are big picture. You know, it, they're broad brush strokes that give us an idea of what will this person be like. But it doesn't often give us very astute or minute details. Now, there are some examples. I mean, Micah 5.2 would be an example. If you remember when the Magi arrive in Matthew chapter 2 and uh, they ask in Jerusalem, you know, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? Herod goes to his advisors and says, where is the Messiah to be born? And they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, because that was what had been written. But, you know, you reference Genesis 3.15. You know, we can think about many other prophecies that are, are explicitly or implicitly referenced in the New Testament. Many times it tells us generally what the Messiah will be like. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to, in the process, have his heel bruised. You think about the servant songs in Isaiah that, that tell us what he'll be like, but don't give us a, a snapshot necessarily, but maybe more of a mosaic that, that takes different pieces and parts and, and frames them together. He's going to be a, a shepherd that's going to rescue. He's going to be like David in that he's ruling. He's going to be a prophet like Moses and that he's going to reveal what God is like. But then in the New Testament, especially in the book of Matthew, there are many times where Matthew will say, and this was the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. And you're like, Really? I, I wouldn't have anticipated that. Uh, for instance, I believe it's in Matthew where uh, when Judas betrays Jesus and uh, then he returns the 30 pieces of silver and they go out to buy the potter's field. He, he says, this is the fulfillment. Uh, I believe it's in Zechariah. I'm, I'm off the top of my head here. And, and you look back at that and you're like, well, I never would have seen that. I'm not sure that I see that. But, but what's happening here is that we're picking up sometimes thematic parallels or that we're understanding that there was a near referent and a far referent. Uh, just like there are times where things happen to certain biblical characters in the Old Testament, there are foreshadowing or anticipating what Jesus would do. Types of Christ. Exactly. Right, so. so that yeah. when he is then referencing, for instance, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking David's words that David spoke in a real specific time in David's life and showing that they were also anticipating what Christ himself would endure on the cross. And again, something we wouldn't necessarily have seen pre as a prelude, but as a post facto. Post Correct. So I don't believe personally that most of the Old Testament writers, even the Old Testament prophets, would have said, this means that the, the Messiah is going to have this specific experience, but rather they were, were writing better than they knew, and that God then is going to reveal the, the depth of his wisdom that he provided that was beyond even their understanding. And this gets what Paul was talking about, right? And to Timothy, mm -hmm. all scripture is God-breathed, inspired, and if it's inspired by the same person, you would expect one who is not constrained by time to be able to uh, inspire the writer in... in uh, 20 uh, somewhere in the uh what would it have been uh, about 750 mm -hmm. bc to be writing something that would be understandable to us in the context of christ absolutely very good tim uh, we're going to be going into the last half of chapter two i believe mm -hmm. next week anything else you want to share about that or anything else about this particular passage that we've been discussing today yeah i think this next passage is 
probably my favorite in the book of Hosea because we're going to get to the end of two and then the begin and the rest of chapter three, which is a very short chapter. And we mentioned in the, the introductory message in chapter one that God is going to weave together bad news and good news. He's going to be announcing judgment, but also pursuing reconciliation. So this last week's message, let's be honest, was a little bit heavier. It was largely related to God's discipline of Israel, the heart behind it, as well as the the reasons why it was necessary. But this next passage is going to give us a picture of God's redeeming love that then is illustrated in Hosea's redeeming love that just has the gospel written all over it. And I think the most convicting part of it for me, if I can give a preview, is that not only are we Gomer, you know, in that we are unfaithful and unlovely, but we all have Gomers in our lives that we are called to love in the same way that God has loved us. And so it is is convicting as well as encouraging that God is calling us to love others with the same pattern that we're going to see in, in the end of, verse, of chapter two and the beginning of three. Just a restatement of your homework assignment, if you're listening, and that is uh, read through the uh, verses 14 through 23 of chapter two. And if you're feeling, even if you're not feeling real ambitious, jump into chapter one and go all the way through chapter 14. You'll uh, you'll be blessed to have the big contextual view mm. of the book of Hosea. Tim, thanks for being with us, and uh, look forward to hearing where we go this coming week. Thanks. We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and we encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. We will be continuing our study of God's Word here in Hosea, the last half of Chapter 2. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.